Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for part two of Debbie Sue Williamson. Hi, hon. Hello, hon. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Yes, it's post. It's it is post Thanksgiving. Yeah, we hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. We know we did. Um, but, hon, I want to go ahead and jump into um, this episode. Yes, absolutely. Introduce our guest. So, Jennifer Buchholz is with us today. Uh, she is a former U.S. Army counterintelligence agent and decorated veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Uh, Jennifer holds a Master's of Science in Forensic Sciences and Master of Arts in Criminal Justice. Chris, I can appreciate that. I'm a master's degree person myself, so I know you, how much you time definitely, you definitely claim to be. and effort, <laughs> effort puts into that. <laughs> um, she has worked for the Arizona Department of Corrections and officer of the chief medical examiner in New York City. Jennifer, you are a professor. You um, have a podcast. Jennifer, what haven't you done? That's my, that's my question. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. We're really glad you're here today. I really appreciate the opportunity and you're totally making me blush <laughs> by reading all of those details. But yeah, I've had a pretty varied background and a pretty interesting and varied life. And I like it that way. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. I mean, I touched on a very, very few things. And by the way, you and um, the other author of this book that I've mentioned to our friends multiple times, Silent Silhouette. This is about Debbie Sue Williamson, who we're talking about today. So you and George Jared also had a hand in solving um, Rebecca Gould's case out of Arkansas. So, so tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get involved in Rebecca's case? And how did you get involved in helping with the Deborah Sue Williamson case? Well, in terms of Rebecca's case, um, just to give listeners like a real quick background, she was murdered in 2004 in a little town called Melbourne, Arkansas, and she was killed inside the home of her then boyfriend, and then her body was removed from the primary crime scene and driven about seven miles away and dumped at a uh, pretty remote site off the side of a highway. And highway is not the right word. Uh a two-lane, very rarely traveled road, mm. and then someone tried to clean up that crime scene. So I, I got, I took interest in that one just because it was clear that the killer took a lot of extra time and went to a lot of extra risk to try to, I think, mislead police. I mean, that's the reason people usually move a body and try to clean the crime scene. So George had been writing and recording on. Rebecca's case for years. He literally was there the day her body was found by police and he saw her. Wow. And I know that it's something that has haunted him and it's never going to not haunt him. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one reason like he always stuck with Rebecca's case and there was always something special about it. Mm -hmm. And he was, also became very good friends with Rebecca's dad through the years. But I just reached out to George a few years ago and I was like, I have some ideas on her case that I think haven't really been explored. And it was like, <laughs> we became wow. great friends from great. the first minute. Yeah. Our first conversation when he called me was three hours and 22 minutes. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We had a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so fast forward again, and we're not here really to talk about Rebecca's case. But, but I hope you do come back after. and talk about Rebecca's case. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And we're probably going to write a book on that one just because we learned so much that we want to pass on to others. Yeah. But what happened was the guy who has been charged and convicted of killing Rebecca joined our Facebook group and was making public comments in our group. And he was sending me private messages. And about six weeks before his arrest is when we got that magic tip from somebody <laughs> that we needed. And it was the fact that this guy had been in the state of Arkansas at the time of Rebecca's murder, but we had never known that. And he was living in Texas at the time, actually yeah. with a wife and a kid. So we had no reason to believe, wow. you know, that he had been in the state of Arkansas, but we did know that he was related to Rebecca's boyfriend. So um, I don't think Rebecca's story is finished. I'm going to leave it at that for now. <laughs> Okay. But um, I think there's a lot more to it that hasn't come out yet. And there's still a lot more information coming to us now, mm -hmm. even though the case is technically closed. But that doesn't mean it has to be closed forever. 
Yeah, we had um, Stephen uh, Michaud, who is another author and journalist on our show a, cu- a few weeks ago. And he was actually there when they were uncovering Dean Corll's victims. Um, wow. And so he, you know, so, you know, like you said, even though it's closed, the story never ends. I mean, he talked about how he, you know, there were just so many things coming out and more and more. And I think even today, you know, you you listen to the Bundy tapes, right? Or the Dahmers or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and some things just start to come out. And um, so I, I, I really hope you do come back um, and talk about Rebecca's case. I'm familiar with it. I know that even the people in Texas, you know, we know that man was found in Texas, living in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a big story here. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and so, okay, so now you, you've worked with George on Rebecca's case. And so how did you come to the W. Sue Williams case? Well, after that guy was arrested, we were sort of in limbo. And we also were invited to present or um, give a presentation at CrimeCon in um, last year. So it's been almost about a year and a half. And we readily agreed to that because even though an arrest was made, we still wanted, you know, to present her case and still raise awareness and see what else we could find out. And it was an amazing opportunity. But I said to George, hey, we're in limbo right now. So why don't we, I mean, it worked once. <laughs> Maybe we can do yeah. it again. You know, so we're like, CrimeCon is a fantastic um, arena where you meet so many family members of victims and so many family members that have no resolution. I hate the word closure. I don't use it, but just no answers, cold cases, whatever. And I'm like, let's, let's see who comes to us, you know, and talks to us about these different cases. And we got a bunch. Uh And ultimately we started looking at Debbie Williamson's case, and I was really intrigued with her case for a similar reason that I was intrigued with Rebecca's case. And that was that whoever killed Debbie spent extra amount of time at the crime scene, and it was unnecessary. So immediately, I'm like, this has to probably be somebody that she knew, and this seems personal. And so immediately, I'm like, we can narrow down the list, right, of Mm -hmm of people who knew certain information about Debbie and the night that she was killed. And so we just started, you know, contacting a couple of family members, a few friends, like, um, and eventually we made a decision like, yeah, let's take this case, let's do it. And so um, George and I went to Lubbock, Texas, the week of the anniversary of 46 years since Debbie was killed. And we specifically wanted to be there that week because we wanted the most important thing to us. We wanted to go to the house that she was killed at and see what it was like at around 930 at night on the actual anniversary of her murder. And we learned a lot. (laughs) So I don't. I don't know how far you want me to go. No, no, no. You're actually starting exactly (laughs) where I want to start. And that is the crime scene. So I I did watch your YouTube video on the reenactment. Um, Mm -hmm. And then um, I did look at different diagrams of the way that Mm -hmm. the house was set up. Um, And just so our listeners kind of get an idea, um, can you kind of talk about the crime scene? She came out the back door. Is that correct? Not the actual front door. The back door is near where the carport is, where... Um, you know, there's blood found by the carport and then we, you believe she's, she's dragged back out, um, towards the back door. Cause you can clearly see, um, mm-hmm. that there was some sort of dragging involved and she, and, um, so, so tell us about the crime scene. What did you uncover? Was it as dark as I think it would be in Lubbock in that, at that time, um, of night that desolate. So, so what did you guys find? Right. So we were super lucky in this case because the home where Debbie was killed outside of is literally almost exactly the same as it was in 1975. So that was obviously a huge benefit to us. Um, Also the other huge benefit was the tenant that lives in that house now readily let us into the yard and the home. And he didn't know us from anybody. (laughs) Like we went went and knocked on his door and I'm like, Oh gosh. I assume he was familiar with the case. He was. Yep. He says, I know what you're talking about. And I said, could we just step into your backyard for a couple minutes? And he's like, whatever you need. And I mean, he talked with us outside in the backyard for a while. He took us inside the house so we could see the layout. You know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to stand in the kitchen. Can you see into the backyard from the kitchen? No, you can't. Um, Things like that, that were really, really important for us to figure out. 
Um, and he was just so kind and so, so gracious yeah. to allow us in. But the biggest thing, one of the biggest things we realized right away when we pulled up and, you know, turned the car off and there was no headlights or anything, it's like it's pitch black in that um, carport and the backyard. And that's despite the fact that, you know, obviously a lot more houses exist now. There's sure. businesses in the local area. The nearby road is much busier. It's like three lanes in both directions. And it was still pitch black. And I said to George, somebody had to know this location. They had to have been to this location before. And they had to know where things were placed in the carport, in the backyard. It's somebody that knows this property. And I totally agree with you on that. It's um, mm-hmm. it's not a place a random, a random uh-uh. person would be, right? Um, no. Not in my opinion, no way. Yeah. You, you, it's too risky. You don't know what's in that backyard or... I mean, you can't and there see? was like a metal, no, you couldn't see anything. There was a metal, uh, um, like a table with four metal chairs back there. I'm like, somebody would immediately trip over them and make a ton of noise if they didn't mm-hmm. know where they were. So um, there was one outside light outside the back door of that house. No other exterior lights. There was no light back then in the carport. There was only that one light and that's it. And so another big thing that, occurred to me while George was in the backyard um, talking with the tenant and stuff. I was inside checking out the kitchen and everything. And I kind of opened the back door. I go, Hey George, stand over to the side of the house. Like as I come out the back door, let's just see what it feels like. And I opened the back door and went to walk out and I was blind because I had been in the house with the lights on. And then all of a sudden I walked in the backyard and I was like, I can't see. I mean, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, But I'm like, there's another big thing that we learned is if her killer was lying in wait for her, their eyes were adjusted to the dark and right. Debbie's weren't. So she had, there was a big disadvantage for her. Now they found no blood in the house, right? No, no sign of, so, so do we believe that she was exiting and she was ambushed? Do we, I mean, is this what, was there anything found in the home? So that's a tough question to answer because I we we have part of the original case file, but we know there are pages missing. So oh. I don't want to say for sure okay. that there was no blood or evidence in the house. Um, but I am 99% sure that the attack occurred in the backyard slash carport. I do not think Debbie was attacked inside the home. There's mm-hmm. nothing that we've read or that we know of that indicates that she was coming out that back door or already out the back door when someone, um, you know, took advantage and went after her. So I think for our listeners, um, Debbie is supposed to be leaving the home. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's important is that she's actually headed back to the pizza inn where her husband, Doug works. And she is supposed to be arriving around nine, nine 30. Do you, what is the timeline around that? And, and would this person, I mean, in my opinion, would have to know that because why not try to enter the home? Let's just say mm-hmm. nothing is found and there, the attack ha- happens outside. Why not try to enter? Um, it, yeah. If you're looking to attack her, if you know, she's not going to leave, but this person could have been waiting knowing that Debbie was headed out the door. Um, right. So what, it, what was the timeline around that? Do you know when her body is um, or when you believe she was attacked? So the last proof of life and I have to use the word proof a little bit loosely because I don't have the phone record, but based on everybody we've talked to, including Debbie's wife and um, the other waitress at the pizza inn and everything, it appears that Doug, Debbie's wife, spoke to her on the phone around 9 p.m. that night. And he can't remember, you know, exactly what she said, but based on his original interviews and what he can remember now, basically um, he was just, I think, calling to check on her, number one. Number two, there had been a request on behalf of one of the guys who worked at the pizza inn. Apparently he had asked Doug if he could go take a shower at Doug and Debbie's house. And it, we believe that Doug, that's another reason Doug was calling Debbie to say, Hey, um, this, this guy either he's coming over to take a shower or maybe he asked her like, is it okay if he comes mm-hmm. to take a shower or something to that effect? Right. Mm-hmm. Point being about the last time that anybody spoke with her was around 9 PM. And I would put the time of death between like the end of that phone call and about 10 PM, because from that point on, Doug kept trying to call Debbie 
throughout the evening and never could get a response on the phone. She also was partially, she had some rigor mortis going on at the time police showed up about 1.15 in the morning, Mm -hmm. which is indicative of her having been dead for two to four hours. So she wasn't in full rigor, but she had some. So it didn't happen real late that night. So she is found near the back door at the the bottom of the mm-hmm. steps. Um, she stabbed seventeen times, mostly yes. in the back, uh, yes. but a, but a few in the front. So it, she found fa- she's found face up though. Pants had been pulled yes. down. Um, underwear had been pulled down to her ankles. The bra and shirt had been lifted over. Um, was any of it actually removed or just lift over her head and down to nope. her ankles? None of it was removed. Um, it may or may not be super important, but her pants and underwear were only down to about like just below her knees, um, not all the way to her ankles. I think that's important in determining that there was probably no sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, nothing was actually removed from her. Her shoes and socks were in their normal position. Just the bronze shirt pulled up real quick and the pants and underwear pulled down. And, and, and she the- was found on her back. Mm-hmm. Well, the the knife was wasn't one that was used from inside as well, as far as I know. Correct? We don't think so. No, it, there's no indication that any <clears throat> excuse me that any knife was missing from the home, and no, the weapon has never been found. But we did do an interview and a lot of discussion with a guy named Jeff Schaefer, who's I mean I consider him a knife expert. He makes knives for a living. Oh. He has a whole business doing it. And believe it or not, he gave us some fantastic insight on the knife that was likely used to kill Debbie. And his conclusion is that it was likely a fixed blade knife. So it was not one that the blade folded down, right? Mm -hmm. It was was a double-bladed knife, which is unusual. So like all your kitchen knives only have a blade on one side. Right. But the um, More like a a dagger of sorts. Yeah, yeah, basically. He believes it was a World War II style knife. Um, well made. It didn't break. And um, no evidence that any parts of it were left in Debbie or, you know, that it came apart or anything like mm-hmm. that. So probably a pretty well made knife and um, probably had a good hilt on it, which protected the killer's hand mm-hmm. from sliding down um, that knife and them cutting themselves. So we believe they took the knife with them, which makes sense. And they also took Debbie's purse. We could speculate on why. I don't, I don't know for sure. But um, those are the, the two main things, I guess you could say, that are missing from the scene. But most likely she, so she had one knife injury that was the lethal one. And that's the one that uh, punctured her heart. She had others, like both of her lungs collapsed. In fact, they found two liters of blood inside her lungs. And everybody knows like how big two liter mm-hmm. wow. soda is. It's a lot of blood. So she bled out internally and externally. But had she not gotten the puncture to the heart, she probably could have been saved if she could have gotten help. But that um, puncture to the heart, she probably had about 12 to 15 seconds before she collapsed. And I think she was trying to get away went down in the carport and then the killer just straddled her and just went to town because there's no evidence of her struggling when you look at the, the wounds to her back. Yeah. And that, and that would have to be a pretty big knife too, to like penetrate all the chest bone and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that too. Yeah. Yeah. At least probably four to five inches is what they estimated. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to assume since she's in the carport when this when the when the attack happens from the back that she was probably running um, at least got away for for a moment. And then we know that she is dragged back into um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to say the light, but you mentioned there's a light near the back door. Um, What do you what what are your thoughts around her being dragged back towards the back door? Yeah, that's so another thing that came to us when we're at the house is like wait, she was killed in a very dark place. Like, even though the carport is kind of near the road Uh at night, if you were walking by, you're not going to see her. And so we're like, wait a minute. They took her from a very dark spot and took her literally into the area of the property with the most light. Uh Even though it wasn't a ton of light, 
it was the most well-lit area of that property. And, you know, we still go back and forth on what we think was really going on with that decision. But I think most likely to me is that either they wanted, either Debbie wasn't dead quite yet, and they wanted her to see her killer and know who killed her, mm-hmm. or um, they wanted to shame her. And, you know, this may have been a situation where she turned she turned down somebody in a sexual way and that just enraged them. And so they may have said, yeah, I'll show you. And um, this is how I'm going to leave you for your husband to find. And so there may have been dual purpose, really. Mm-hmm. But I think I think most likely when we see someone take that extra time to remove clothing or expose them like that, it's usually because they want to embarrass the victim. Mm-hmm. But I do, as much as I hate saying it, and this is absolutely no blame towards Doug, I think maybe they really wanted to hurt Doug even more mm-hmm. than he was already going to be hurt by leaving her the way that she was. Yeah, to be found, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm with you on that. Um, if she's, if they're in a dark space, if if someone does find her, they're finding her in the dark, right? And maybe yeah. they're not going to be able to see you know what they want them to see but putting her back to where if they find her there then they're they're going to see exactly what they want them to see that's yeah that's what kind of makes it less less random like that too you know right because if you're a thief and you're going to take her purse and you're killing her you're not going to move her you're going to take the purse and you're going to run yep you just get the hell out of there that's the normal reaction grab the weapon and go yeah so there's always that reason for why somebody stays at the scene and takes that extra risk. And a lot of times when a body's moved, like in Rebecca's case, it's because they want to delay discovery. Right. But actually, the way Debbie's body was moved and where, I think it sped up the discovery of her body because Doug pulled into that carport. So her car, I'll try to explain this as clearly as I can, the carport fit both Debbie's car and Doug's car. Debbie, if you're looking at it from the road, Debbie would park on the left side mm-hmm. and Doug on the right. Well, she was attacked on the left side of her car. So like between the driver's side of her car and the house. Okay. And that's where she went down. If she'd been left there, Doug would have pulled in on the right side, run around the front of her car to the house, seen nothing oh, and probably gone back right. to his. Yeah. And then, and maybe then he would have gone inside and called 911 or something, but it's like, mm-hmm. he could have totally missed her for any period of time. Yeah. So it wasn't moving her. wasn't to delay the discovery of her death. There was some other meaning to it. Okay. So now we know how she's found. Um, her husband is working at the pizza Inn. She had dinner there that night with her parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and her sister, her sister, I do believe was um, there mm-hmm. with them at dinner as well. Um, mm-hmm. Now, a couple of people that are, are listed in the book that I, I want to talk about and just kind of set the scene for the pizza Inn. Doug is the manager at the pizza Inn. her husband. Um, Debbie doesn't work for pizza Inn. she's just going to come and return some money that Doug needs to put back into the register for just money that he borrowed to to buy something. So she's expected to come back that night. Plus, they were really busy. So I think maybe mm-hmm. she had planned to go up there and help him. She had done that before. But people knew that she had the money on her and that she was supposed to be returning to the pizza Inn. Now, Paul Neal is the uh, the one of the guys in the book mentioned. Um, he dated Debbie for a short time, uh, was very good friends with Doug, and was working at the Pizza Inn. And you mentioned somebody getting off early, and that was actually Paul, right? So mm-hmm. um, he's leaving to go on a date with someone at ten o'clock. Um, he he did not shower there that night. Um, as far as well, well, well we I, I, yeah. How do we, how do I say that in a way that because yeah. I'm not convinced <laughs> otherwise? But um, he he mentions now, Jennifer. I kind of have to pull back here. I always say, I always tell Chris and and people when we look into these cases, if we look and see what was happening 24 to 48 hours before mm-hmm. the victim is killed, what can we find out about them? Who was around them? Did anything occur? Did they say something to anybody? But there was a the, some of these people were all together the day before at the lake. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That is correct. Yeah. So we have Paul at the lake. We have Doug at the lake. We have um, so so friends. I'm going back to the day before. Now we're gonna we're gonna 
fast forward, rewind, 24 hours before she's killed. We've got Mm -hmm. Doug, Debbie, Paul um, at the lake. Who else was at the lake? There was one other couple, um, Mike and his wife were there. Okay. We think Lex Brown was there, but we don't know that for sure. So that's that one's not a fact. But there was at least the other five that went to the lake the day before to um, water ski and hang out. It was pretty regular activity for them. Now, Paul Neal um, works at the Pizza Inn, but before before Doug and Debbie are married, Paul and Paul and Debbie dated. Now, do I have this right? They dated, but there was actually, there was never any sort of intimacy or did, did they have that kind of relationship or was he just more of... You know, they dated for a little bit, but then he became really infatuated with her when they weren't together type of thing. I mean, what is your what is your um, view on that relationship before she got married? My understanding is that she dated Paul for a few months. I don't think it was real a real intimate relationship, but they were also young, you know, like high school. So and back then it wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. It just wasn't as common. Right. Um, but it sounds like they were together for at least a few months. And then in the fall of 1974, when Debbie was a senior in high school, she started working at McDonald's and Doug was working there too. Although he's a couple years older than mm-hmm. Debbie, but she met Doug and they just hit it off. So Doug ended up breaking up with his girlfriend Debbie ended up breaking up with Paul and then she and Doug got together and they were together until they got married. And unfortunately until she died, mm-hmm. um, there was never any breakups between her and Doug. So she and Doug dated about eight or nine months. It sounds like before they got married. Um, but mm-hmm. the Paul relationship wasn't nothing. And it was clear based on the um, reports that Debbie's parents gave to police that he very, very much liked Debbie. Yeah. I don't know if infatuated is the right word, but he definitely cared a lot for her. So I find it interesting here when I was reading the book um, and it was talking about how Paul was not invited to the wedding um, or maybe he just didn't go. Maybe it was just too weird. I mean, just thinking about that. I mean, you can kind of see mm-hmm. how that would be a little awkward. Um, but so he ends up, but he ends up leaving town for a couple of months and then he comes back and that's when he asked Doug to get him a job at the pizza inn. So did you get the yeah. feeling that they just kind of picked up where they left off? I mean, I guess I would feel like if that was, I'm trying to, you know, if that's Paul and he doesn't go to the wedding and she breaks it off with him, right. To be, mm-hmm. to be with Doug, like there, there's some, there might be some little, a little bitterness there. And then he sure. go, goes out of town, comes back. So do you feel like there was, because see, I'm thinking there was no kind of connection or communication between them after he left town. I could be wrong, but I kind of feel like these. this is a newly married couple. He's not around anymore. And then he comes back to town just, what, a month or two before? Two weeks. Two weeks. No, two so weeks. not very long. So, mm-hmm. so, so again, I'm kind of questioning the connection that they actually really had with Paul at this yeah. point. Yeah. So I have to defend Paul. Um on at least one thing, which is that he was not living in the Lubbock area at the time Debbie and Doug got married. So I think they just didn't invite him because they knew he wasn't going to be able to come. Okay. Okay. Um, He was not living in the area at the time of their wedding. So like you said, he got back in August of 1975, two weeks before Debbie's murder. And something that we've discussed a lot is this is the first time when he returns to Lubbock that he is seeing Debbie and Doug as a married couple, right? It's like more real. Um, And so that may have struck something with him. Um, But I tend to think the day before her murder at the lake, something was said that set off somebody. And I'm not only pointing, I'm not pointing finger at anybody in particular. Uh, there's some sorry. There's some suspicious stuff about Paul, but there's suspicious stuff about the other guys that were at the lake too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's possible Debbie said something that made someone angry, or it's possible one of the guys made some kind of joke that they thought was funny but got misinterpreted, or whatnot. But think something set this murder in motion the day before. 
So, and I agree with you. Um, I think that there is, um, when I read your book and then I realized that they had all been together and then I'm thinking mm-hmm. he's only been in town a couple of weeks. These other guys, she, she actually had a relationship with one of the other men at some point, right? Lex Brown. Kind of. I relationship is probably a little strong of a word. Okay. I think they, my understanding is they went to prom once, which okay. this would have been like a year or two prior as friends, which I know tons of people who have done that. Um, But there was never anything serious between them. But there is something really odd about Lex. Well, there's many odd things, but one is that he never discussed Debbie's murder, like with anybody who was close to him after her murder. So he went and he went on and got married a couple years later Mm -hmm. and he's now divorced from that woman has been for a long time. And we got a hold of her and she said she had never, basically had never heard him say one word about Debbie's murder other than one time when they were down in the area of Debbie's house. And she said something to the effect of like, I wonder whatever happened with that woman who got murdered down here. Mm-hmm. And I guess Lex said something to the effect of, oh yeah, I knew her. I gave her a ride home from a party. But that was it. And so, or that's all she could remember. So I asked the wife, well, do you mean like the weekend of her murder? And she goes, well, that was my impression. So, but that's all we have. So mm-hmm. we've wondered, like, was Lex at the lake? We know Doug had to leave earlier than Debbie from the lake on Saturday because he had to be into work. Mm-hmm. And Paul had to be into work, too. But I don't know that he had to be in as early as Doug. But I was like, maybe Lex was there and he gave Debbie a ride home. And something was said, and maybe she, you know, maybe he's like, you made some joke about Paul, and, and then Debbie makes what she thinks is a joke, like, yeah, right, I, I was never serious about that guy or whatever, and then Lex mm-hmm. tells that to Paul, and that just enrages him, or, I mean, really, it could even be the other way around, too. Sure. Um, but it's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. I, <laughs> I had to read the book twice, because I'm like, I'm, I'm missing, <laughs> there's something between these two that I can't figure out, right? So we'll yeah. get, we'll get kind of... Okay, so now we've covered the lake, and now um, the day of her murder, like we mentioned, she goes into the pizza inn that night. By the way, has Doug ever said she mentioned anything about the lake or anything that nope. was said? Nothing nothing mm-hmm. that was brought There's up? Okay. Nothing in his statements to police, um, no memories of, of, of he can't remember anything out of the ordinary. Uh-huh. We've talked to the other female who was at the lake with them. She told us everything she could remember, but it's, you know, it's hard. It's 46 yeah. years later. Yeah. But she doesn't remember anything out of the ordinary. Her husband won't talk to us. So that's another issue. But um, okay. that's enough. Between these three guys not yeah. talking. Yeah. <laughs> I think something's going on. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here thinking you're absolutely right. Three people that, well, one of them, Paul has, um, mm-hmm. Paul has spoken some to to yeah. uh to you and George, but the other two have not. Is that correct? They just correct. Lex Brown said he'll speak to police, and that's it. If they if they call um, to question him, Lex has never said one word to us. Okay. Um, I actually talked to a woman who said she was his wife. I ah. don't know. I assume she's correct, but I can't. You know, I'm not going to say 100 percent that I talked to his wife, but I talked to a woman who said she was his wife. She basically told me to piss off, um, leave them alone. He told police everything he knew back in the day. And if they didn't do their job, it's not his fault. And I'm like, well, that's a really weird response for someone who was friends with this woman who was viciously murdered. And why would you, <laughs> you not know? want to help? Uh, yeah. Just um, basic human instinct. Is exactly. Interesting. So he has never responded to us directly, only through the only the wife, and she would not give me Lex's direct number. Mm-hmm. I tried to send him a message through Facebook, and he blocked me within about a minute. So that's been the response. So I'm like, well, what am I supposed to think here? Your 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 response is completely atypical. So it's suspicious. It is suspicious. Okay, so these, um, so that's that's the day before. Now we're back to the day um, Debbie's killed. Um, like we mentioned, she mm-hmm. goes into the pizza inn, has dinner. She's supposed to be returning back to the pizza inn. Um, Paul is there working, but he has asked to leave early because he has a date. And then, like you mentioned earlier, he asked Doug if he can go to their house and shower. 
like you yeah. mentioned, Doug made that phone call. Either Letty Debbie know he was coming, or maybe he is, a, you know, or at least he's thinking about coming over to shower. Um, mm-hmm. We don't actually know if if that actually occurred, but he does show nope. up. Um, now he clocks out. He clocks out at what about a quarter to nine? He leaves the pizza in for his date. Yeah. So let me back you up just a sure. little bit. So originally his date was if I remember correctly, it was going to be around 9.30 or 10. But he asked Doug if he could leave around 8 so he could go see Tina earlier. And Doug said, yeah, it wasn't that busy at the time. But when 8 o'clock came, apparently it was sort of like busy. And Paul did not clock out until 8.43. But he's unaccounted for until 10 o'clock when he shows up at his date's house. And we don't, he definitely showered because he showed up with wet hair and she remembers like he didn't smell like pizza. So I know he took a shower plus his hair was wet. We don't know where he showered. He told police he went home mm-hmm. to shower, but it's still, the time still doesn't work because it's like five minutes for him to get home, 10 minutes to get to the date's house. So what's going on the other hour mm-hmm. that he's unaccounted for? Now, did he have his own home or did he live with his parents? He lived with his parents. Were they home? And conveniently, he said no, okay. but they never went and questioned his parents. Wow. So, uh, yeah, very big oversight on that. Um, they let him alibi himself, which isn't a thing. <laughs> yeah. But he goes, oh, yeah, I went home and showered. And my mom commented that she knew I'd been there and showered because there's wet towels or something like that. And I'm like, but. They never went and talked to his mom. So um, I, I can't take that as fact. Yeah. And it also, but the timing just doesn't add up. It's like, well, you asked to get off work early, but then you ended up at your date's house at the same time that you originally planned. So what was the point of all that? Right. And she was mad. Okay, here's the other thing. So Paul claimed that the date called him and asked to delay their date. And I you know, we've talked to the date multiple times and like, what do you remember about that? And she's like, that's a flat out lie. I remember I was pissed that he was late. She's like, I was, and he was specific in his lie too. He said that, Oh, the date called and said she was doing her girlfriend's hair. So she wouldn't be ready till 10. Well, the date is like, uh, uh, she's like, I never did anybody's hair. (laughs) She's like, I was sitting at home with my grandmother, my mom being mad that he was so late. So and women don't forget stuff like this, Jennifer. No, obviously <laughs> it's stuck with her. Like she gave yeah. a lot of detail. Yeah. It stuck with her. So it's important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So he's, he does not have an alibi, but there's a lot of other people who don't either. We don't know where Lex was. Lex claimed he showed up at the Pizza Inn around 1050, but he wasn't an official employee. So he had no time card and it was never his whereabouts for the whole night were never looked at. So we have no idea where he was. So interesting. Okay, so they um, they get busy. Paul leaves, goes on his date. They end up going to mm-hmm. a McDonald's, which get which in the book I read that his date thought that was weird because typically yes. they would go. You know, their friends were all at Pizza Inn, and she thought yes. that's where they were going. So they yes. they end up at the McDonald's, and then I guess she just. I'm I'm trying to like picture this. I was picturing them just sitting at a McDonald's and then they're not there too long because he ends up going back to the pizza inn because he's supposed to help with inventory. So do you know what time he shows back up at the pizza inn? Yeah. So they go to McDonald's. He claimed he wanted to go there because he used to work there and he had friends who worked there, but the date was kind of like, well, this is awkward for me because I don't know these people, but mm-hmm. she was sort of at his mercy or whatever. Now, the Pizza Inn was scheduled to close at midnight, and it sounds like it did. So Paul and Paul does not show up till about 1.05. So if he's supposed to be back there to help with inventory at midnight, why is he not there until after 1? That's mm-hmm. another big question and another big gap of time because he dropped the date off supposedly around midnight. Um, so oh, where is he? So, okay. <laughs> For another hour. But he coincidentally shows up at the pizza inn within a minute or two after Doug leaves to go home and check on Debbie, which really makes me wonder if Paul thought she was going to be discovered much earlier in the evening mm-hmm. and Doug wouldn't be there. Cause I mean, like how hard is it going to be to face your friend if you just killed her 
his wife. And again, not blaming him or saying he did it. Sure. But it has to be considered. Yeah. But I suspect he went back to the pizza inn and Doug's car was still there and he panicked and was like, oh, what mm-hmm. am I going to do now? I don't want to go in there. I thought Doug would be gone by now with the police and she'd be found and I'd be, you know, I would be here at the pizza inn and sort of accounted for. And I think his plan got messed up. <laughs> well, and, it, and the pizza um, inn actually ended up being super busy. So so Doug was mm-hmm. not only, help, you know, Paul leaves. He lets Paul leave early, 845, 843. Yep. He clocks out. So he's cooking. He's helping. Um, her name is Marianne. Is that correct? The waitress that was there that That's- night? Yes. Okay, uh-huh. so Marianne's working, and she ends up being Doug's alibi that he actually yes. was calling Debbie. He was trying to get a hold of her. He was telling people that he, he you know, I, I can't get a hold of her. Mm-hmm. She was supposed to come back up here. So he, they, you know, he is a little concerned, but he can't leave. And not until Correct. 1 o'clock, then he leaves the Pizza Inn. The Pizza Inn, I think, is just a couple of minutes from his house. And then yes. that's when he finds Debbie and he gets back in his mm-hmm. car and drives back to the Pizza Inn. So when he comes yes. back to the Pizza Inn, there's Marianne, Lex Brown, yes. Paul. Is there anyone yes. else I'm missing? No, that's it. Okay. So those three are there waiting. He comes in and says, in his words were, Debbie has been raped. Mm-hmm. Um, he he Does he have a conversation with them? Does he immediately call 911? Um now, Paul and Lex actually go to his house while he's on the phone with number yeah. one to check on Debbie. So yeah, t- talk about that a little bit and, and what kind of message did you get from, yeah. from this type of behavior? So Doug comes back around 110, 114, somewhere in there. He actually um, <laughs> forgot. Well, it's not funny, but he actually pulled in and, and he was so like um, panicked and everything. He forgot to put his car in drive. And it started rolling into the street. So Lex saw this and ran out the door and was able to jump in the car and stop it. Mm -hmm. And he gets it back into the parking lot or whatever. And there's some exchange between Paul and Doug about what's going on. And did you, is Debbie there? Is Debbie at your house alone? Or I'm not even sure that's the word he used. It may have been, did you leave Debbie there alone? And it's like, well, how do you know where there is? But, you know, another thing. So anyhow, he takes on the hero mode i guess and was like come on lex you know we gotta go we gotta go be with her can't leave her alone or something and so yeah they jump in lex's car and go to doug's house and then they go reportedly you know they go into the backyard i'm still confused how they didn't walk through all the blood in the carport but they didn't which makes me think one or both of them knew not to walk alongside debbie's car okay see i didn't even think about this jennifer mm mm-hmm they yeah. park behind the carport. Is that what they do? They just park. I think we don't know for sure exactly where they parked, but, but we know the, they went through the, the back. Quickest, right? Yeah, the quickest distance would be along the left side of her car from the street to the backyard. Interesting. So, but there's no. It's clear they did not go to the left of her car. There was so much blood there, like it would have been obvious, and they actually probably would have slipped and fell. Um, so they must have gone around the other side of her car, which I'm like, but that's not the most direct route. So why would you pick that? Strange. And then it becomes more of a problem between these two because when Paul is asked by police if they went in the house, Paul says, yes, we did. We went in to check to see if the killer was still there, which is ridiculous, if you ask me, who would do that? Nobody. But when Lex, is asked this, when, yeah, when Lex is asked that question, he says, no, we did not go in the house. And this is the day after the murder. There's no way you're forgetting that critical of a detail. So one of them is lying from day one, and that's probably my biggest problem with those two. One of you guys is lying on day one. Why? Did the police ever hone in on that fact of just the... the, Doesn't appear so. Nope. I mean, that's such a big uh, discrepancy between the both of them within 24 hours of this happening. Yeah. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, Mm -hmm. is one thinking that if their DNA is found in there then that's because they were in there or I don't know. I don't know. There's a few theories. Obviously back then there was no DNA testing that's right. yeah. um, other than blood type. Mm-hmm. They could mm-hmm. do blood typing and they did. There was fingerprinting. That mm-hmm. was a thing. Yep. Um, so I, I think that would be the top motive for saying you went in the house. If mm-hmm. he thought his prints were going to be found somewhere that was kind of out of place. It's also possible that 
you know, one of them did this and left a piece of evidence in the house. Mm-hmm. Like the idea I had is if a shower was taken at Debbie's house, did the person take their watch off and then they forgot it like on the sink and they're like, Oh no, mm-hmm. I've got to go back in and get that. Otherwise Doug's going to know it's mine, you know, something like that. Yeah. So there's a few reasons why, uh, you know, Paul claimed that they went into the house, but obviously we don't know the truth. So they um, are now at the house. Uh, Lex says yeah. he checks for Debbie's pulse and she doesn't have yes. a pulse. Uh, just a mm-hmm. couple minutes later, Doug is pulling up um, behind yes. them and then police arrive. It, are, are there other people coming onto the scene? Are they calling the parents at this time? Are people kind of walking in and out of there? Do you, what do you know about when, when the investigation begins? You've got all that correct. Doug also called Debbie's um, mother and stepdad after he called 911. Okay. And he told them that something had happened to him. Now, we don't know his exact wording, but he obviously told them something bad happened. And so they got up. They left their two girls at home because they were asleep. They hopped in the car and went over to Doug and Debbie's house. And so they were there as well. Um the stepmother, I mean, sorry, not her stepmom, her mom, mom, mom <laughs> was kept out of the scene by police. And, but the stepfather was actually allowed to go into the backyard with police and then go through the house. Mm-hmm. I don't know really why, <laughs> I guess, to see if he thought anything was out of place, but it's like not his house. And yeah, that's a little I strange. Don't know, but, I don't know. Maybe when they realized yeah. her purse was missing. Maybe they thought Could maybe be, something yeah. else was taken or, you know, do you mm-hmm. notice anything else taken? I mean, I don't know. He yeah. doesn't live there. So, yeah, um, not that he would really know where I mean, Debbie kept everything. But um, yeah, exactly. I mean, surely he'd been over there. Sure. So maybe he'd been there a lot with her mom. I don't know. So that might be why mm-hmm. they thought maybe he would notice something, you know, out of the ordinary. But it, it, he didn't really from what we can tell. Um, I think it's imp- also important to note that um, Paul Neal had actually been in this house lots of times um, because yes. uh, Doug grew up in this house. Is that right? It used to be his parents' home. That's correct. Yes. Uh, what and about Lex Brown? Just, was he a friend of Doug's yeah. growing up too? Yeah. No, I don't think he was as close to Doug, okay. but him and Paul considered each other best friends. Ah, so okay. it seems like wherever Paul went, Lex was there. And Doug and his best friend, Lennis, and mm-hmm. Paul and Lex often teamed up on a bowling league and to go golfing. So the four of them hung out quite a bit. So I'm sure gotcha. Lex had been to the house many times. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're on um, the scene. They find um, Debbie. They talk to Paul and Lex who show up there. Um, anything else about the crime scene or what they uncovered Um just that night that just sort of stood out to you? Um, There was a broken window. The kitchen window had been shattered, they think, with a garden hoe. Okay. And that's yet another action the killer took um, that they didn't need to because there's no way. That window looks small. First of all, why? It's tiny. There's no way to, like, if on our Facebook group, there's photos yeah. of me standing next to it. There's okay. no way you're hoisting yourself up. Besides the back door is wide open, so you can just walk in the back door. I I don't know. I guess it was just a panicky ruse to try to confuse police and make them think possibly there's a burglary gone wrong. Um, That's probably the most logical thing. It's not impossible, though, that that window got broken during a struggle, you know, between Debbie and her killer. We can't rule that out. But the hoe, the garden hoe is on top of the drag marks. So somebody dropped it there after she is moved which is probably why I guess we lean towards the garden hole being used, used to break after. that window. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, did they find glass inside of the sink? I assume the window was yes. in front of the sink. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was broken from the outside. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that yeah. seems like the most yeah. logical. Um, taking yeah, up the sure. purse and breaking the, breaking the window. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so... People are questioned now. Now, just reading the book, I'm, I was trying to get an idea of how the investigation started. Right? Um, were police pursuing um, and talking to everyone they should have talked to? But then I, I read um, you guys shared that a lot of these people have only spoken to police once, maybe a couple of times. A couple of them took polygraph tests, but. Mm-hmm. This case is not a. Uh, I, I wouldn't say they have continued to question them over the years. Um, 
No, most of the people that we reached out to who had, who like had known Debbie directly or had seen her, you know, in those 24, 40 hours before her death or had worked with her, stuff like that. I mean, I think all of them, I'm trying to think if there's any that didn't say this, but all of them said they had not been contacted by police in 46 years. So no, you know, part of a good investigation is like you want to go back and re-interview people. Right. And that was never done. Now, there was a few people who were looked at as persons of interest or suspects. Uh-huh. And police did, you know, interview those people more. But in terms of all the others, it was like a one and done. And that was it. Um, no follow up. One thing that was disappointing to me is they did try to do a decent canvas of the neighborhood. But there was a lot of homes where the residents weren't at home when police knocked on the door and it doesn't appear they ever went back and actually made contact with those people and i'm like man it's disappointing because like who knows what somebody saw or heard in the neighborhood that night but didn't realize it was important do you know why but it's also the 70s too is it the 70s okay i mean because it's it's probably that yeah um our you know our investigative skills were just well i wasn't even alive but it's like you know, the skills back then were so completely different, and I can't totally fault police. They did right. do a lot of work on Debbie's case. I mean, there's uh-huh. hundreds of pages. There's probably thousands of pages of their case file. So wow. I don't want to – I'm not trying to bash them. No, 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 did, no. I think they did the best that they knew how to do back then. Now, to me, if Chris and I were talking about this in part one. Stabbing is a very personal attack. You're you're mm-hmm. you're very up close with that person. They're typically they can see you, um, yep. you know. Or if even if you come from behind them, you you eventually you're going to stabbing doesn't necessarily kill you automatically, depending on where you're being stabbed. So there is some sort of 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 time where you are um, alive and being stabbed and and realizing who is doing this to you. Um, yes. We're so 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 I agree with you. I think this is someone she knew. Um, I think this is someone who knew her and knew Doug, knew their schedules, knew she was home alone that night, mm-hmm. um, and and really just had the uh, just kind of took it as a as a crime of opportunity. Um, and just because she wasn't sexually assaulted doesn't mean it wasn't a sexual crime. Um, Correct. With that sort of. Um, you know, pulling down the pants, lifting up the shirt, posing, mm-hmm. I would say, just a, a, a yeah. posing her for her to be found that way. It reminds me of like the Black Dahlia case, right? And 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 mm-hmm. people, you know, they're laid there and, and they want the shock factor, right? They want that. They yes. want that when that person or persons um, finds them, finds them that way. So you got to talk to some people um, that are mentioned in the book. Paul... Um, Paul Neal, Lex Brown is mentioned. Um, Marianne is mentioned. Doug Williamson, who did talk to you and George extensively um, about Debbie. So just really, um, I know we could talk about every single interview you did with every (laughs) single person. But really, what did what what? What came from those interviews? I, I guess that's really what I what I think our listeners want to know is, you know, it was there something that just you know, told you and George, like, something's not right here. Um, what what were your just um, overall experience of dealing with everyone um, that saw Debbie at the lake, right? Or those those really important people yeah. that were close to her? Um, so how, how did those interviews go? Most of them were fantastic. Um, most everybody was like, thank you so much for taking another look. You know, this has always bothered me. Um, I, Debbie was so sweet. And I mean, that's another thing, like, not one person has anything bad to yeah. say about this girl, but uh, most people were really thankful and they really racked their brains as best they could. And for the most part, the things that they could remember matched up perfectly with their original statements to police. So that was, you know, positive for us. But then you've got these three friends where a lot of it doesn't add up or they refused to talk. And it's like, if you had no involvement or you don't know anything, what's the problem? Why don't you want this, your friend's murder solved? Um, so that's something that continues to plague us, but you know, I can't force anybody to talk. So uh-huh. that's, that's their decision. And I do understand and recognize that trauma affects everybody differently. So, you know, Lex's wife was saying, this is too traumatic for him. You know, he checked her for a pulse and he just doesn't want to have to relive that. And I respect that. Sure. 
to a point, but I'm like, can you just talk to us once? <laughs> I yeah. promise it'll just be once. Um, but there's no point now because it's like the stuff's out there. So, um, and he's had yeah. plenty of time to come up with whatever story he feels like coming up with. Um, but overall it was, I think it was really beneficial. We shared everything with the Lubbock PD. I literally made them a carbon copy on a thumb drive of everything we collected and I handed it to the detective and he was shocked. He's like, wow, uh, I've never had, he always calls me a PI and I mm-hmm. am technically, but I'm like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not really what, I mean, I, we're doing PI work in a way, but that's not really what it is. But he's like, yeah, we've never, I've never had a PI that shared with me. They always just wanted info from me. And I'm like, well, I can't arrest somebody. Like, yeah. you got to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, what yeah. does it benefit me if I hold back information? That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to augment you guys. Yeah. So he really, really appreciated that. And I think we did the best we can. I mean, he has resubmitted evidence for new testing. Um, I don't know if he's got the results back from that yet. And I understand them not wanting to make those results public. That's totally fine. So we're sort of me and George are kind of in limbo. But it's been, it's been overall, for the most part, a positive experience. And it's just so humbling, like how many people joined the Facebook group. We're almost at 2,000 members. That's awesome. How many people want to discuss it? People who went and researched, you know, found aerial photographs from 1975 of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Things that we would never even think to go do. Like the crowdsourcing thing really does work. Yeah, And, you know, two people can't do everything on their own and we can't think of everything. So it's been, it's been really humbling to have so much assistance and so many people that care. Yeah. Well, like I told you, there's a lot of people who want this case solved. Um, mm-hmm. It's been unsolved a very long time. I, I feel like this is a very solvable case. Um, yes. And it might just take that one person to come forward um, and, and say they know something. Um, now do you feel now you've mentioned, you shared everything you have with, um, the Lubbock police department. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really glad that they've accepted you and accepted George and really just, um, appreciate w- what you've done. And I, I, I guess I just think even though sometimes, um, Chris and I have police who are friends and they tell us that, you know, um, it's it's not unheard of for things to for for police to dismiss people because they want to, yeah. you know, they put a lot of work into this. Right. It's been a very long time. Whether they've put sure. in enough work is questionable. But but mm-hmm. but it's an old case. And and sometimes they want to be the ones to be able to solve it. Um, at, at, you know, just it's just a police thing. My my friends would say so. Yes. Um I'm glad they've, I'm glad they're accepting that on some level. Um, what can we do as the public? Is there anything else about Debbie's case that, um, that we should know about or, you know, what kind of call to action can we do? What can our listeners do? It's tough. Um, we have had a group recently who've been emailing and sending letters to the police chief and the mayor, Okay. but not with much success in getting any response. Um, I really, unfortunately, think this case, it was so damaged by the whole Henry Lee Lucas fiasco, which listeners can go Google, but Henry Lee Lucas had nothing to do with Debbie's death, so I'm not going to really get into that, but like, it was... He admitted to it, right? I mean, that's basically what he did. He admitted it, but he didn't do it. Yeah. But he also Um, admitted to like 500 murders or something, right? That he never did, so... It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. But um, it was, you know, the department considers that whole mess in the 80s a big black eye, but I'm like, come on, guys, it's been three more than three decades now. Just yeah. forget that. It, people make mistakes. Law yeah. enforcement make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Not a big deal. We can all learn from it and move on. But I really think the higher ups just want her case to go away like like it was for so many years. And yeah. there's only so much me and George can do. And ultimately, they will be the heroes if, if they make an arrest. I mean, we yeah. can't do that. You know, they'll be the ones making a press conference. And, That's right. You know, escorting this guy in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs past the media. And I so hope that we get to see that one of these days because the department deserves it. And it would, it would, I think, renew some faith in terms of not just that department, but, you know, solving cold cases in general and just showing like, look at what all these citizens who are volunteers did. Yeah, You know, it might not have got you the solid evidence but it's gotten you a ton of information that's really useful and that they can use to their advantage. 
So, I mean, listeners, join our Facebook group. It's called Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. We still post stuff for discussion. We, I mean, anybody who wants to make a post or has a question or whatever, please have at it. We love it. Um, it keeps people engaged and involved and it just keeps the pressure on the killer. Because mm-hmm. if they're alive, they're in that group watching. I guarantee it. So it keeps the pressure on. It helps spread awareness. So that's probably the biggest thing you can do right now. And I'm in that group, so I will post it yes. <laughs> into my group um, and awesome. point everyone that way um, so they can just keep with updates. And, um, and and I encourage everyone to get this book and read it. And you wrote this book really for people yeah. to kind of come up with their own assumptions, I think, and yes. to really yeah. just um, at least know who you've talked to, what they've said, mm-hmm. if there's any discrepancies in their original statement, which I do believe there are. Um, and yeah. you, you address that in this book. Um, so, yeah. so people can read about that. And one other person I want to mention who who we haven't talked about was her brother, because I, I mm-hmm. know that um, I, I felt for when, when you spoke about him in this book and what ends up, you know, he ends up taking um, his own life. Uh, eventually his sister dies. Debbie was his sister. He yeah. had b- tried to borrow money from her. You know, they, they're, they had a sibling relationship and, but you know, they were both older. It, there were some tiffs, um, but they kind of accused him or wanted to maybe think because her purse had been taken and, and they had fought over money before and he had tried to borrow money that he was a viable suspect. So, you know, I wonder what he had gone through over the years. Um, I know he did know. something kind of strange at the at the funeral. Um, but like you said, when people deal with grief, um, mm-hmm. you don't really know what they're going to do or say. And it's yeah. not it's not up to us to 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 pass judgment on that. And but he was in the um, you know, I, I do believe at one point the cops probably believed it was him. Um, yes. And it and it seemed like it kind of tortured him um, over the years. And so, you know. Like you said in the book, there's always more than just one victim in these cases. Um, oh, yeah. That's what I was just going to say that. Yeah. Like, this killer didn't take just one life. Yeah. They took a few more. And one of them is Debbie's brother. And I strongly believe her stepdad, too, who died of a heart attack in his sleep at not a very old age, you know? Yeah. And then later her mom. So, uh, yeah, this killer has just has yeah. just tormented and tortured this poor family for now 47 years. And um, one thing I want to mention about the book, um, because we get accused of profiting off murder, is that any proceeds from our book go towards the reward fund that me and George always put together out of our own bank account for each victim's case that we investigate, Mm -hmm. and also to just help ourselves with our travel costs. So there's no profit being made on the book. Um, If you do buy it, just know that any proceeds go towards two really good reasons. Um, because we never ask a victim's family to offer up money for a reward fund or travel. If they want to travel with us, you know, mm-hmm. they got to pay for their own ticket or whatever, but we never take a dime from these victims' family members. We pay for it out of our own pocket. So, but the number one reason we wrote the book is just to give Debbie another platform because her generation likes to read. So yep. we're like, you know what? <laughs> they love to read books. So that's yeah. the main reason we wrote it. We just want to keep spreading her story. And I hope that, you know, others out there that want to take on a case or think they can help, that maybe there's some lessons that we've learned that help them. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's another big reason. Like, we want to share our experiences, what has worked and what hasn't, so that others can can help with other cases, too. Well, I, am, I know I appreciate what you're doing, and so I really hope that... Um, the Lubbock PD and everyone else that is involved with in this family and Debbie's family. And, um, you know, I, I hope there is some sort of level of gratitude for them for what you guys are doing, because this case is, it haunts the people of Lubbock. Chris and I did a live it show does. in Lubbock, um, you know, last October and, you know, people, we, people talked about this case and mm-hmm. um, we're going to be presenting this case um, when we are in Freona, Texas, um, coming up this weekend. So we have, you know, there'll be hundreds of people there listening. And, and, you know, you just never know who's going to hear something. You just never know who knows something. And like yes. you said, that person was in your group, right? And they were commenting. Yes. And, and people, yes. <laughs> ma- people make mistakes. And they get mm-hmm. and, and you never know the behaviors and, and, and where they're going to show up in a person letting you know that 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 person was um, in Arkansas at the time. And, and it yeah. just takes that one tip um, f- for it to happen. So I hope that with this book, with 
everything you guys are doing in the group that someone comes forward because I feel like this could have been solved a long, long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, but you know, cases are solved 40, 50, 60 years later. And, and so yeah. I, you know, I, I hope nobody gives up on this cause, cause, um, she deserves the justice. Totally. Totally. And if anybody out there does have a tip or again, you know, we always say this, right. But like, whether you think it's important or not, um, bring it to us, but just know, like, if you don't want to go directly to police, which obviously you have that option, but if you don't, you're not comfortable with that, you can message me or George and we will take all your identifying information away from it and just give the detective the content of the tip so that you can remain anonymous. Um, and Lubbock PD does have a $5,000 reward out there right now for information that leads to an arrest and conviction in Debbie's case. So small incentive, maybe. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, um, anything else you want to say to our listeners or talk about? I hope you come back and talk about Rebecca's case and what um, I would love to put into that. And really, thank you Mm -hmm. so much again um, for just being here and speaking. Um, uh, You know, I always tell Chris, you know, boots on the ground research. There's nothing like it. Right. So you being able to go there and really get um, a sense of what Debbie had experienced, um, you know, is is it leads you into um, it leads you in the right direction is what I believe. So I, yeah. I'm hoping you'll that, always learn. Yep. Yep, you'll always learn something by going to the actual scene of the crime. Yeah. So if listeners are interested in hopping on board with our newest investigation that we really only just started a couple months ago, um, join our group unsolved murder of Linda Malcolm and her last name is spelled M A L C O M. It's a little bit different, Okay. but George and I are just getting started. So if, people are really interested in helping and doing the crowdsourcing, please come join us and help. Um, I just went to Washington two weeks ago, which is where Linda was murdered. She was killed in 2008. Um, She was stabbed more times than Debbie actually. And then her house was set on fire. Um, And we're, but we would love all the input and analysis and ideas and brainstorming and whatever that people want to bring to the table. So that's our Perfect. main focus right now. Sounds good. Okay. Well, I will make sure I join that group and I will share that awesome. group as well. Um, and we'll push Appreciate everyone it. to your, yep, up to your direction so they can follow on these cases. Um, Jennifer, thanks again. I look forward to having you back. Thank you, Chris, as always. Yeah. Thank you for coming. That was some fascinating insights. Absolutely. No, some- this was so great. Yeah. This is wonderful. And thank you for like keeping Debbie's story alive and for continuing on even next weekend. Hopefully I can yes. see a video or something. Yes, I told Chris we need to video. You, yeah, you we're, have we're requested to, for it yeah. to be videoed. Yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> we'll see what kind of Black Friday deals we can find. <laughs> we're going to go get a like Black that. Friday good camera, Jennifer. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What an excuse to go buy a camera, right? Yes, that's right. That's a good go. one. <laughs> All right, friends. Well, thank you for being here. Um, thank you again, yes. Jennifer. And um, we'll see you next time, friends.